should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday, October 19th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host here on the Progressive Voices Network. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. So our... I have no other words to describe him. I can't even joke and say our lovely president... Our time-wasting president is <laughs> is that horrible enough? Anyway, our president made a shocking statement, or not so shocking statement, uh, or comment uh, the the other day in making a joke about our vice president wanting to hang LGBTQ people, and that prompted some journalists to go out there and say, "Well, actually, how far fetched from the truth is this?" And so, in an article published on QueerT.com. That led me to some links and to the People for American Way who had, um, who had access to this article that was published by the Indianapolis, or Indiana Policy Review. And I guess vi- our vice president, Mike Pence, was the head of the Indiana Policy Review and published numerous articles basically urging employees n- employers not to hire gay people and making statements such as this one. Homosexuals are not, as a group, able-bodied. They are known to carry extremely high rates of disease brought on because of the nature of their sexual practices and the promiscuity, which is a hallmark of their lifestyle. So here to talk about our vice president, Mike Pence, and uh, how far-fetched could this statement be about being so anti-LGBTQ is Peter Montgomery, who's actually with the people for the American Way and Right Wing Watch. Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks, Michelle. I really appreciate you having me on. So I got this article, you know, that uh, Querity had had copied the link to that, uh, you know, you guys had access to, and this is this is an article that our vice president had actually published. These are his words, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Yes, he. Uh, I think that um, he's not the actual author of all those articles, but he's certainly the person who uh, uh, was, you know stand behind them in the sense that he was um, putting out that journal and and uh, you know that article is is one of a number of really far right um, positions that that he staked out and mm-hmm. you know he that is pretty consistently during his career you know he had a part of his early career where he was a right wing talk show host and he described himself as Rush Limbaugh on decaf which is basically my interpretation of that is uh, all the extremism with a little less shouting, you know? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, thank you for pointing that out. Again, it's like a group of other people in there. Uh, and so it wasn't, uh, I mean, you guys have been doing this kind of work, in, especially Right Wing Watch, and been you know, putting stuff out there, um, documenting people's trails, if you will, of anti-anything, um, anti-liberal uh, views even. There was something you know that happened during the Obama era, and he used this term evolution. I've evolved on a lot of my positions, and especially with LGBTQ rights. And I, I don't want to. I don't want to say that you know I believe that our vice president has evolved. He hasn't shown any any type of action that he's evolved. But um, you know, talk to us about how possible that these thoughts, these ideas of, of being so anti-LGBTQ, not wanting to hire, you know, gay people in companies or having this, this uh, position of that, um, could the vice president argue that he's evolved? Uh, I, I personally don't feel that he's done anything to make us feel that standing behind this article in the 90s was a long time ago. Yeah, I don't think there's really any evidence that Pence has evolved in his um, beliefs or attitudes toward LGBTQ people. I think that um, you know it's widely uh, recognized that he is kind of the um, the conduit into the White House for the religious right. Um, you know, who all rallied around Trump and played a big role in in helping him get into office, and and kind of Pence is now. Uh, their inside guy. And, you know, back um, before Pence decided to run for governor, he was in Congress, and he was really at that point considered uh, the religious rights' favorite candidate to take on Obama in 2012. They, uh, he won the straw poll in 2010, I believe, at the Values Voter Summit. Um, but then he, he was afraid that uh, running for House running for president from the House of Representatives was um, harder to do. And so he thought that if he was governor, uh, it would be easier to make the leap to president. So he's always been um, a fan. I mean, the right has always been a big fan of his, the religious right. He's, you know, uh, far to the right on abortion. And, uh, you know, as as governor in 2015, mm-hmm. um, he signed that religious freedom bill that, that blew up in his face when the business community uh you know, challenged him, um, basically signing the right to discriminate into law. Mm -hmm. Let's stay on that, this topic of religious freedom. It's come up, especially with our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions. And there was a point where the business community, you know, there was a huge uproar and people were very against uh, this religious freedom bill that suddenly has become a little popular. Um, But now that we've got, you know, president like Donald Trump um, as president, we have someone like Jeff Sessions, who's made a public statement that religious freedom laws should be in place and anybody, you know, can, in fact, not serve an LGBTQ person uh, if it is for religious reasons. Uh, Do you think that businesses, do you think attitudes, I mean, I just feel confused, like, is uh, is the resistance still there? Or are we a little afraid that they've now taken over and have be, been able to uh, to rewrite these these policies and change people's attitudes? Well, I think it's going to be interesting when they try to pass uh, federal legislation to codify 
um, some of what the religious right is looking for. And in, in that point, I think we'll see, I hope the Buddhist community will still be strong. Um, you know, the, the big fight in Indiana was in 2015, and since then there have been some, some other uh, pretty big fights at the state level where um, business leaders pretty much very strongly came down on the side of non-discrimination and of not creating these big carve-outs in civil rights laws for people to uh, claim a religious right to discriminate. Um, so that was, I think, one of the reasons that, that Pence uh, didn't run for president himself was that uh, uh, that blew up in his face. He had a couple of reasons he was unpopular in Indiana, but when that when he signed that law and then tried to say that it wasn't about discrimination mm-hmm. and had a disastrous uh, you know, Sunday morning TV appearance when he just wouldn't answer the question uh, posed to him four or five times about whether the law he had just signed uh gave business owners a right to discriminate against um, gay people, uh, it really blew up in his face. And then when he, the business community reacted so strongly against it that um, Pence's business allies in Indiana pushed him into, pushed the legislature into um, passing an amendment that, that softened the discriminatory impact, and he signed it. And then some on the religious right called him a sellout. So mm-hmm. he kind of uh, lost friends all the way around in that mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Peter Montgomery, who's a senior fellow at the People for the American Way. We're discussing our vice president, Mike Pence, and uh, it's all surrounding this comment that the president had made that, that uh, uh, jokingly, supposedly, that Mike Pence would, would hang LGBTQ people. While that might be an exaggeration and a true joke, uh, our vice president certainly has shown his colors throughout the years serving in office as being anti-LGBTQ and trying to pass laws that discriminate against LGBTQ people. Um, you know, Peter, you, you made a great point just now talking about he has, has lost friends all around the way. When people are talking about the possible impeachment of the president, they can't get over the fact that Mike Pence might just be worse. We might be worse off with, uh, you know, Mike Pence as as president I, I, I don't I, yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, it's interesting because on one hand, it's hard to imagine anybody being worse. And um, from the point of view of the religious right, you know, Trump has pretty much given them everything they've asked for. So uh, I'm sure at Pence's urging, um, but also because Trump knows that the religious right is his, they're his most loyal base right now. Other chunks of his supporters are starting to drift off. But um, you know the conservative evangelicals are are the group still supporting him most. So uh, so Trump has given them pretty much everything they want. So I don't know if uh, a Pence presidency would be a whole lot different for them. But it would certainly um, not be a good thing because he is he is an ideologue. He's a he's you know uh, an extremist on a lot of the social issues. He is as far to the right on uh, women's reproductive choice as possible. And uh, he's also intimately um, connected to, subservient to um, the big Koch brothers money networks that are mm. the other part of the, the base. Um, when I was in, I was out in um, Cleveland last year for the Republican convention, and you know when Pence was announced, uh, it really struck me at the time that that I think Trump picked him because with one guy. He got access to the two um, 
biggest parts of the Republican base that had not really been that excited about Trump, and that was the religious right and the Koch brothers' networks. Mm-hmm. And so uh, with Pence, it was a real twofer for Trump to um, to get both those really important parts of the Republican base into his camp. Mm-hmm. Geez, tell us more. Um, <laughs> I, you know, something else that I, uh, I wanted to bring up, I mean, they're pandering so much to the religious right, but social attitudes tell us that, you know, this isn't the American way and, uh, <laughs> being from people for the American way and you guys doing the, the guerrilla work for Americans and telling, you know, the truth, which is hard these days. People are sharing f- fake news left and right or believing uh, our, our president, even when he is outright lying, you know, on his Twitter feed. Um, I would like I would like to kind of hear your thoughts on this, you know, this this fight. I mean, if you've got an entire administration that's completely focused on the religious right and pandering to this group, which in all honesty is a, uh, a marginal group, right? It's not the entire uh, America, if you will, and this administration is doing so much to regress on rights for so many groups. I, I, I don't know. It almost feels like a political suicide come 2018-2020, or am I being blind? Well, I think it does provide an opportunity. I think it provides an opportunity for progressives to point out all the ways in which, you know, the Trump-Pence administration is uh, out of line with um, most American people. And, you know, they have really lost that battle when it comes to quality f- equality for uh, LGBT people because the public is, is with us. But, um, you know, they they are, they have worked very hard over the last several decades. You know, the right, both the corporate right and the religious right, at building this huge infrastructure. They've got an infrastructure of, you know, colleges and law schools and grassroots organizations and think tanks. And so, you know, they they put that into operation. And so turnout, um, uh, voter turnout among the most conservative and most politically evangelical, uh, politically engaged evangelicals uh, was through the roof in this last election cycle. And it was not through the roof for, um, you know, core parts of the Democratic constituency. So I think Trump's strategy uh, with the help of Steve Bannon and others is going to be for 2018 and 2020 to just do everything he can to fire up his base uh, because he, you know, he did not um, win the White House by making an appeal to the middle. He did it on um, firing up his base and trying to discourage uh, his opponent's base. And so I think that's what they're going to try to do. But that does give us an opportunity to point out um, where he's out of line with with, uh, most Americans. And there's a lot of things that he's out of line with most Americans on. Don't go away. We'll continue with the Michelle Meow Show right after these messages. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, 
Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Mm-hmm. Got a couple questions for you, a couple more questions for you um, on this topic. I mean, I mentioned, you know, Jeff Sessions as our attorney general, and he basically wrote a, a love letter, as it's posted on the website at uh, the People for the American Way, in which he talks about, you know, needing this opportunity for the religious uh, freedom bills and things like that and, and liberty for religious uh, thought or practices. Um, I, I don't know. I had a really horrible feeling about that, even just as a, a normal citizen that our attorney general, who's supposed to be, right, like from in basic yeah. terms, a lawyer for the American people, is using his platform to literally promote a very uh, personal or unilateral agenda of protecting religious freedom, which then discriminates against a whole lot of people in the country. What are your thoughts as a senior fellow for People for the American Way? Like, how did that make you feel? Well, I, I mean, I think the, the fact that Jeff Sessions our attorney, is our attorney general is appalling on so many levels. I mean, it was just um, a terrible appointment. You know, he'd given his record on civil rights, the fact that he is now the person in charge of uh, enforcing and protecting the civil rights of all Americans is, is really a tragedy. And, you know, that's on, on voting rights and, uh, uh, you know, uh, his trying to let police departments off the hook for, for violent policing, all those things. And certainly on this idea of uh, going along with the religious right effort to weaponize religious liberty. You know, People for the American Way is a strong believer that religious freedom is a core American value. I mean, one of the great things about this country is that your rights as a citizen do not depend on your religious beliefs and that we don't have a state church. And uh, so we're big fans of religious liberty, but they're trying to turn religious liberty from the shield for uh, all individuals to, to practice their faith into a sword that they can use against non-discrimination laws. And, um, you know, religious liberty was, was not meant to be turned into something that could harm other people. And uh, uh, most Americans are with us on that. Um, you know, I think uh, as... as uh, polling shows that most Americans do not believe that business owners should be able to um, uh, 
use their personal beliefs as an excuse for discriminating against um, who they serve in their business. But the Supreme Court's conservatives opened the door with the Hobby Lobby ruling to um, to letting even poor for-profit corporations uh, claim a religious conscience. And so uh, we're going to see more battles about uh, just how far that ruling goes in the courts, and we'll you know, certainly see some battles over legislation that the religious right is trying to push through. It hasn't even been a full year of uh, Donald Trump as president of the United States. It feels like a lot longer, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And so, you know, that goes back. And and part of my last question is there have already been so many lawsuits and so many legal fights at the actions of the president in this administration. Uh, What's what's your two going to look like? And I know you can't answer that. I can't answer that. We don't even know what uh, next month looks like, but it already feels pretty stressful, and I'm sure you guys are busy all around, you know, the clock. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it is. It's very hard to predict because, you know, these days you kind of wake up every day and sort of dread picking up your phone to see what's happening. Um, But I think it's clear that um, Trump is going to continue to try to uh, keep his base happy by doing things for them. And, And a big part of that base is the religious right. So I think you know, they're going to push him to support um, legislation in the name of, of religious freedom that would further uh, restrict legal protections for LGBT people. Um, he's going to try to use, um, you know, budget battles and other things to, to further their attack on uh, Planned Parenthood. Um, and, you know, he, he's, he's going to keep... Um, you know, his attacks on the freedom of the press are so, again, such a fundamental thing to what we think of as the American way of, of freedom of political press and freedom to dissent. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to have our hands full as long as this guy's in the White House. Peter, I want to thank you so much for your time and all that you do. And, of course, everyone at People for the American Way for keeping truth out there. Thanks for helping us get the word out. should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday. Uh, Michelle Miao, your host. The Michelle Miel Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. 
Yesterday, I mentioned that we would have a special guest on the phone with us. We've already had her on the television episode for Coffee TV. For those who were in the Bay Area, you're able to catch it or you caught it online at michellemeow.com. But I thought it was an interview worth an extended conversation, especially with the Me Too campaign that has taken off since, uh, since really, Harvey Weinstein had been exposed of all of his... I'm going to call them crimes um, in in a lot of ways. And, you know, the Me Too campaign was started by an African-American woman, Tarana Burke, about 10 years ago after being assaulted in kind of this empowering campaign, this movement for women to come forward and tell their stories. Well, our next guest is Evelina Galang. She is the author of Lola's House, uh, Filipina Women Living with War. And it is a book that highlights 16 Lolas who came forward and told their stories about being captured by the Japanese Imperial Army um, and uh, have become comfort women. So, Evelina, thank you so much for joining us here again. Thank Uh, you so much for having me. I, I'm, I'm like, oh, there's so much going on here in the studio. Lights are going off. Yeah. Uh, the fires are happening. I mean, there's just so much happening in the world. And at the same time, we're having these really, really important conversations. One thing that I feel that's missing from a lot of the voices we talk about, like sexual assault, sexual abuse, and gender inequality, and especially as it applies to women, is one thing we haven't brought up is how war impacts women, and your book does that. Yes, it does, yeah. Um, And I feel, I think it's such an important, the book is coming out at at a time when this conversation is happening um, in social media, right, with with, uh, Harvey Weinstein and everything. And I feel like the Lola stories of war and what has happened to them uh, during war is really um, an extension and an extreme of all these different conversations that we need to have about women, their bodies, and how we treat them, and how we treat people, women who come forward with their stories of sexual assault. I think it's a really important time for these two conversations to kind of come together. Mm-hmm. Now, for those who don't know, comfort women um, basically become sex slaves and become, you know, rape becomes then a weapon of war. And that's that's what happened to these Filipinas. About a thousand of them were taken by the Japanese Imperial Army and they went through years and years and years of abuse. Um, I, you had mentioned it on the television show, but we're starting all over now. This okay. has been almost a, a decade's worth of work for you. Oh, more than a decade's worth of work. It's been um, uh, 18 years, almost 20, almost 20 years of of, of work. And, um, and I'm so excited to finally have it out in the world. And I'm so sad to also say that of the 16 women that I interviewed for this book, only one is now surviving. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, that whole conversation that people are saying on social media, like, why did it take all these women so long to come forward with their stories? Is something there's there's great insight in your book in telling the stories of these Lolas. And, and you had just said it's decades worth of work. Um, it took them a long time to talk about this intense trauma that has happened to them and their bodies and their families. Um, let's right. start with the first story of the first woman who came forward. Why did she come forward? And, you know, what was her story? 
so the very first woman who came forward actually um, was a Korean comfort woman, um, and and that was and she uh, I I can't talk about that story because it's not on the tip of my tongue, but there was um, a movement. You know, uh, the Korea South Korea has been incredibly vocal about the Korean comfort women, and so what happened was back in the 90s there was a conference where three women gave their testimonies of what happened to them during war. So in addition to the thousands of a thousand Filipinas, you know, we're, we're looking at um, an estimate of 400,000 women all over Asia, you know, during the during World War II, uh, we're thinking have been uh, systematically enslaved and placed into these military rape camps. So uh, there was a conference um, and and the, there were there were a couple of Filipina grassroots organizations there at that conference in South Korea, and they put two and two together and went back to the Philippines and organized with 14 other uh, grassroots organizations. And one of the main um, leaders there was Gabriela Network, and they got together and they started to campaign and ask women if if this in fact was an experience that they had. And the very first woman who came forward was Lola Rosa Maria Hansen. Um, she heard about, she was, I think she was like putting up laundry when she first heard it on the radio. Radio was so important this way, you know. It, um, she was putting up her laundry and she heard it the first time and she broke down and didn't tell anyone. She heard it a second time and by that time she'd been hearing about She'd been hearing this call for women to come forward, and she finally did come forward. And um, when she did and she became public, 173 other women slowly began to come forward in the Philippines to say, this was my experience, this is what happened to me. Mm -hmm. So um, she was the very first to come forward. And because of her, all the women in my book talk about her. They talk about um, how she was this light, and, um, and they all went towards her. And it was because of her that they came forward. Mm-hmm. Now, the book goes in and out uh, in between, you know, your own narrating of what was happening or what you were observing as you're, you're going through, um, th- yeah, the research, right? And then, mm-hmm. and then it also goes into a voice of the Lolas themselves telling their stories. Why did you do that? I mean, there for me, I loved it because it gave so much perspective. And from woman to woman, there was a true connection there. But I wanted to hear from you why you thought that was uh, the way or the, the strategy or the how you wanted to go about telling their stories. Right. The structure of the book that, you know, the structure of the book is something I thought about for a long time. And I, I played around with different ideas. But in the end, so, you know, I had more than 40 hours of interview tapes with the women um, and when I could, I interviewed them more than once to have them tell me their story. And um, I also found uh, some of the women had given their testimonies to other to other um, venues, and I tried to you know get those testimonies as well. And I and I and I, I compared them, you know. Um, one of the things I I realized is it was so important for the women to tell their own stories that even though. Um, you know, I'm really a fiction writer, and I could probably play with a narrative and, and maybe tell a more fluid story. I thought it was important for them to actually give their testimonies. So, number one, I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted that to be in first person. So I had 40 hours of 
mostly Tagalog interviews that I needed to have transcribed and then translated and then um, really put in such a way that people would understand it simply. Um, and so that was number one. And then I thought, wow, you can't really have 16 stories of rape. And, you know, they're not raped just once. They're in these camps, and they were raped several times a day. And then it depended on how many weeks or months or years they were in these comfort stations, right? So it was pretty brutal. Like one experience is brutal, but then to imagine 16 of them all together would be too difficult. So I started to think about, like, what could I do to create breath and to give moments of reflection Mm. for the readers? Mm. And what could I do to distinguish one woman's story from another? Because all 16 of them are so different from one another. And I had a different relationship with each of those women. Right. Right. Well, I I loved it. And it really helped carry carry me through the entire, you know, book because it's hard. It's really hard um, when you start to to read, especially the women's account of what happened to them. You really feel like they're there in the room with you. Mm -hmm. And you've seen enough war movies to have the picture in your mind of what is happening. And to remind folks, you know, during wartime, the the types of rape, I mean, rape is rape. Um, rape is rape, yeah. Rape is rape. But, you know, during wartime, I mean, you're talking life or death in a lot right. of cases. If you fought back, they killed you. Uh, right. Your life was disposable. And that's what I read, or that was kind of what was common in a lot of the stories. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It was a, um, it, like in the case of Lola Priscilla Bartonico, she was 17 years old. She was with her cousin um, when they were when they were stopped by the, the the Japanese army, and she witnessed her cousin uh, resisting, rebelling, and they did what they wanted to do anyway, and then they killed her. So when they turned to her, she knew in her mind that if she resisted, it would mean death for her. So even though she did not want to allow them, you know, onto her body like the way they were, um, she she held still because she knew it was the only way she would survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, ma- I mentioned, you know, rape during wartime and this being used as a weapon of war, right? And it's right. about retaliation. It's about power and from a, from a personal level, but also um, now we're talking about like governments and power structures there. Um, what was really hard for me to grasp was, and I don't even know if you and I can answer this, but I'm going to ask anyway. Okay. And it's this like, you know, this, uh, this thought where I'm like, it's not even logical for people who are supposed to be fighting war, for example, to be in the, uh, you know, the trenches fighting for their country or whatever to engage in this type of action of, you know, innocent people, women, mothers, children, teenagers, um, I feel like, you know, that that doesn't it it has nothing to do with um, why we're at war anyway, right? the purpose of it, why you enlist and you go and you're supposed to be supposedly protecting your country or fighting for your country. Do you see where I'm going with that? Right, and so I kind of right. want to, you know, wanted to know if you had... Um, gotten into you know the uh, any words from the lolas as far as like the psyche many women right now are talking about assault and abuse as power structure so I, I just wondered if they had talked about that that this deliberately wasn't about being patriotic to their country um or doing what they had enlisted to do or forced to do but this was absolutely 
inhumane it's evil and and that's where you know most of these people like were they forced to do these things right well i actually you know the 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 conversation i've heard more than once has been you know in the case of the philippines uh they were the entire country was um, an innocent uh bystander to world war ii the japanese were there the americans were there the war was happening and because the war was happening their women were being taken right and in the case of the japan you know so we know that that rape happens this raping and pillaging happens in every war that's ever that's ever been you know that er, that at, at at any time we have any time we have war that um our women and children our young boys they're going to suffer because it it's it's a natural part of war now why that is i don't know um but they really there was a lot of anger towards both the americans and the japanese because um if it were not for this war, they would have been left alone. They would have the, the girls, and they were girls. I mean, we say women, but they were 12 years old. They were 14 years old. They, you know, some of them were not even menstruating yet, right? So they mm-hmm. were girls, and they mm-hmm. were taken, and they were, you know, and their whole lives have been affected, you know, um, never really to understand or to have those kinds of conversations or experiences where um, falling in love and, and making love becomes a beautiful thing, right? It, they've, it, that gets taken away from them from the get-go. So, um, yeah, no, I think that one of the things they, they have talked about is, is feeling like they were victimized by all the soldiers that were there um, on the mm-hmm. islands. Um, secondly, uh, I think that they, because of who they were at that time, did not have that strong sense of duty for country. Um, they were like kids going home from school, getting picked up and placed into these sex slave camps. Or they were, um, in, in the case of Lola Benita, the family was, had already evacuated, but they were so hungry, she snuck back to their house to, um, because she knew there was a bin of rice there. She could bring it back to the family. And lo and behold, the soldiers were there occupying her home and she was taken and kept in that home as a as a comfort uh, comfort girl mm-hmm. I want to share a story um, you know I want to share a story the not so glamorous life of Antanasia Cortez yeah. and which in, it's, it's not even just focused on her experiences after being captured by the Japanese Imperial Army and becoming a comfort comfort woman but it starts really with um, also, her own personal experiences with fam- a family member uh, right. who touched no. her inappropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Well, um, she, you know, her her entire life uh, is is so interesting because it seems that people were taking advantage of her of her her beauty and her body from a very young age. I think she was. Um, she was sent to work at this uncle's home as um, as one of the helpers, um, one of the um, servants, really, because he his family had more money than um, hers. And one day she was working there, and he 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 um, he he touched her inappropriately. When she went home to tell the story to her father, he was enraged, and um, and actually. Um, 
at first sent her away, you know, and had this whole thing. She was talking about how when she was, her her father was so angry that they they placed this bolo at the doorway, and 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 the bolo was supposed to signify that she should not come in, she should not come home. And when the bolo was removed, that was when she could come in. But her her um, the abuse of her body began at a very early age, um, and then again when she was like thirteen or fourteen, these two uh, men. Uh, young men, probably probably in their 20s, um, uh, had her taken, and they also took advantage of her. And then the one became her first husband, mm. right? Because now she'd been, quote, used. And so um, so they went to, the, to her family and said, you know, now, now she needs to be my wife. So her first husband was someone who um, who had also abused her early on in life. And then, of course, there was her experience with the com- you know being a comfort woman and being taken during World War II. So you know her story is also very interesting because she's one of the uh, original three women, Filipino women, to come forward after uh, during that time that Lola Henson came forward. The most horrible thing about um, her story, and I say you know. I hate it. I hate it. I get so angry. Yeah, I think um, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, yeah. Is you know she runs for her life after right. some Japanese service members enter the restaurant that she's working at. She drops the tray of food and runs throughout the back door into a Chinese cemetery, and and you could just um, you could feel her desperation. She leaps into an open grave, and they pull her out of. The, the grave that she's hiding in and, and rape her unconscious and then left her there with the dead. And I just, that. Yes, yeah, I know. Um, uh, and, and I, I don't, I mean, I want to talk about this, this story in specifically because of the brutality and how, you know, and to highlight like women's bodies and how they have been used during wartime. And then to imagine uh, that type of assault and right. coming forward with the stories, like it, you had just said, you know, people were not forgiving um, who then heard her stories. People saw a lot of these women as, as used and abused, and uh, there, was, there was a very negative reaction to them coming forward with their stories. To many of them, right. So, um, you know, uh, many of them, if when they came forward, depending on who they were and what region they were from, um, received a different reaction. So uh, in the case of Lola Orduha, she went home. She was, you know, uh, in, in the country and through a closed door uh, and you could hear the crying. What she was told was, uh, Iha, it's better if you go, if you go to the city. It's better for you. It's better for us. Because on the streets, she was being taunted and they were calling her Tirat Nang Japones, which in Tagalog means uh, the Japanese leftovers. Um, so in her case, she was sent away. She could never come home again. Um, in another situation, uh, one of the women came forward and she uh, joined this uh, campaign for justice. And her husband got very angry with her. Um, and they did not speak for many, many, many years. Um, he did not forgive her for coming forward. Um, and then in another case, you know, uh, uh, there was just silence and uh Lola, Lola Priscilla, she did not tell her family, did not tell her husband, did not tell her children. She couldn't sleep at night. Um, 
and she didn't want to close her eyes and have these nightmares. So instead of doing that, instead of sleeping for those 50 years, she would uh, stay awake and make these beautiful murals, beautiful paintings out of um, cardboard paper and tissue paper and no brush, no paintbrush, and temper paints. And she would make these incredible murals so that she would not have the nightmares. I wanted to ask, you know, what you thought as uh, doing this much research and hearing from them, like what kept them going? What kept them alive? Um, I would say that there was, you know, that anger can be pretty healthy, that there was like a a good deal of anger. And also um, during that time, I would ask them, you know, why, you know, how did you do that? You know, I would say, and they and many of them would say, which means through the mercy of God. So part of it was faith. Part of it was um, just having faith and, and, and having prayer with them during that time. But also I would have to say that part of it is the anger of having to hold all of that in for all those years and, um, and, then, and then to finally be able to speak their truth and to fight for their justice, to ask the Japanese government for a formal apology, to uh, ask for reparations, to ask that their stories be included in history books. I think that was a part of um, the survival for them, you know, taking their anger and transforming it into something positive like that. And I also think that family had a lot to do with it. Many of them were thinking about either they were old enough to be married and have husbands out there and children, or or their parents, and that kind of kept them going. But there was some, there was like a true instinct for survival, which I really, it was, it's been amazing um, to watch them and to also see them go from being these women who were once victims and then survivors, and through the years, as they campaigned for their justice, uh, to see them really become heroines, and like I call them superheroes, um, and to see them mentoring young uh, women and young men who have also, you know, suffered sexual abuse in their homes and um, in their workplace, uh, you know, getting advice, giving them advice and telling them, this is not your fault. You did not ask for this. You have a right to stand up and say no. You have a right to ask for justice. Mm-hmm. Has there been any formal apologies or reparations? No, there have not. Um, there has been... Um, on two occasions, the Prime Minister of Japan has given his personal apology. Once it was in the Kono Statement, way back in the 90s, and then more recently, uh, uh, Abe. Um, but those are personal. Those are personal apologies. It's not an act where uh, there was a discussion in the Diet. There was a vote, and then there was um, a formal apology from the government. Um, There was a private women's fund uh, that was started in Japan for the women, the Asian Women's Fund, and that appeared to look like reparations from the government, but it was not. It was an organized effort to get uh, private businesses together to give the women money. Um, Some of the women took it. Some of the women did not take it. Uh, But there has not been a formal apology nor reparations, and in fact, I, there has been um, a great effort to erase the stories in history books and to, uh, I, there in San Francisco, that Comfort Women Memorial has uh, gone through a lot of politicking uh, because there has been pushback from the Japanese government about having that war memorial there. 
you were telling me that in the last trip that you made. I got yeah. time for uh, for one more question, and you know, it really revolves around even like what's going on right now. Um, Harvey Weinstein is in some supposed. I don't know rehab. It's like, what does that mean? I don't. I what don't it, What is your What is your problem? What are you fixing? Is it a disease? I don't understand it. I'm not discrediting or or undervaluing right um, any illnesses, mental illnesses that one can have that leads to sexual perversion. Uh, but but to also bring in your story it, and and kind of our point of how so many years of damage and us ignoring it and us not taking it seriously is grounds for the repeat of history. And so my, my last question to you is if the country, you know, like a country like Japan or another country, it doesn't even, it doesn't matter what country, if these countries are not held accountable and, uh, in my opinion, you know, the actions of what they did, if they're not deemed as war crimes, if they are not being uh, punished for that in, on that level, this will happen again. Or it is Absolutely. happening. It is happening. It is happening now. Right. I mean, if you're not held accountable, you're going to get away with it. If you're not held accountable, um, the culture, we have a culture that lets people slide on these uh, acts of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. We have a president who was accused by several women during his campaign, and none of those none of those claims were taken seriously. Not so much by him. I'm not going to expect that of him, but of our of our own culture, of our own society. So if we're not taking a moment to listen to the women who are standing up and speaking on their own behalf and taking them seriously, if we can't do that and we can't hold those people that they are talking about accountable is definitely going to repeat itself. And I have to say that, you know, I guess my end note is those women, uh, the Filipina comfort women that I talked to, every time they told their story, they relived the experience every single time. If they had their druthers, they would probably forget it. But they really cared about, they cared about, they care about our daughters and they care about stopping this from ever happening again. So they felt, at the cost of reliving these experiences, and you know how horrific the stories were, that it was important to say them. It was important to say them and for people to hear them so that we could stop it. But I don't really see anyone listening, even now. Mm-hmm. I Make mean, sure. you are. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else here on Progressive Voices Network, and we still have to come together we have to do the work and that's part of you know the me too campaign that's part of uh you doing the research and bringing this book and and having it come to fruition it now can be in your hands pick up a copy today lola's house filipino women living with war by m evelina galang evelina thank you so much for joining us here again on the michelle meow show thanks michelle nice talking to you our last guest for today is the director of tom of finland dome Kadokoski. Dome, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing great. How's San Francisco? Uh, San Francisco. Uh, well, you know, it is. Um, we've we've been praying for a little bit of rain because we suffer from the fires, the North Bay fires. Not sure if you heard of them, oh. but they're wildfires 
that happened and, and destroyed parts of Napa, Santa Rosa. And so the air down in San Francisco was super thick and really hard to breathe. And today it looks like it's going to rain. So it's a good thing. <laughs> I really hope it rains. I yeah. really hope it rains. Yeah. Hey, I loved, love Tom of Finland, the movie. Uh, the uh, It's a biographical account of Tom of Finland. Um it, it, you know, one of the things that I loved about it, just from uh, the from a very basic, you know, viewer, if you will, is just the picture of how beautiful the the entire movie was in the and the cinematography. Um, I wanted to, you know, ask you. My first question for you really is that it started out uh, with uh, the a scene, you know, of 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 Tom. Uh, serving in the in, during World War II for Finland, and many people actually had wondered, you know, because Tom of Finland is known as this artist uh, who really brought gay homoerotic images to the forefront as far as the gay revolution. You know, why was that important to you to include that part of his history? Uh, well, war. I mean, war played a big part of his life. I mean, first of all, I should have to think about Finnish history. We had two wars against, against Soviet Union, and during the Second World War, and almost all of the men of his age had to, you know, enlist. And uh, with Tom, it was intriguing because war was both positive. You know, used to say that it was kind of his best time of his life, and at the same time, it's it's tragic time for so many. And of course, it was also a tragic encounter for him. So you, you he had a very special attachment to war which at the same time you have your wildest time. You're saying always that this is the time when sex was, sex was wild and people just were basically having sex everywhere. And at the same time, there's death, and you have to kill people, and you have to kill a man, which is basically the, the most beautiful thing that Tom of Finland thinks of, you know, killing mm-hmm. a man. And I think that was a big influence in his art, if you look at it. It's always been there, and, and, and especially post-war was kind of the era where he started finding his voice and as an artist. So there's a both a dramatical uh, core with war with Thomas Finland, but also just an influential core, how we see influence his uh, art. Mm-hmm. You know, what the important thing for me, what I got from it was this juxtaposition of, of uh, you know, wartime, and, and that's what he suffered through in terms of, you know, no, but when you're fighting for your country during war, I mean, you know, who owns your mind, your body? I mean, you're, you're doing something for your country. It's a very selfless service, right? Uh, but at the same time, it's so confined and it's contained as to, to discipline, as to following through, following orders. And then you, you, he, he finishes his service, and then in post-war Helsinki, uh, he also is experiencing a different ty- type of containment, a different type of confinement as a gay man. And, and so I, I thought that it was uh, really important you know, scene to get to toggle back from because you were able to put those things together. That this this man was feeling so much um, emotions from not being able to be completely out. And at the same time, yes, exactly. And I think at the same time, you think about the era. Finland, it was illegal to be gay in uh, mm-hmm. Finland until 1971. It was considered a sickness until 1981. And especially post-war. Finland was maybe the most, in its most moral, moralistic point. So in terms of confinement, I think he was more, he felt more liberal during war than actually in post-war Finland. 
which is an era, era that the Olympics were nearing. Finland was trying to, how do you say, uh, polish its image as a country. So, you know, the, the police would raid parks where gays were cruising. And so it's, it's an era where it's quite, you know, you have to be cautious. You have to be smart about it. And so at the same time, it's, it might be, as you said, there's authority and there's, uh, it's enticing and it can be very sexual and erotic, even that part of kind of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, that you have to do it all in secrecy. And at the same time, I would say that it very much, as you said, it would very much affected his art because it was, his art is so much about liberation and sexual freedom and mm-hmm. having no shame. And basically, those are things that in that era in Finland, obviously, you bore if you were in a sexual minority. You were, you basically had to kind of, or people were, you people were oppressed also emotionally into a certain confinement, as you say, into shame. And that was the one thing Tom of Finland hated. And that's one thing that he kind of opposed. Because he was, I, I, I always think that he was basically a man who had no shame. And he drew about it. He drew about those fantasies and the, the sexual freedom and the freedom of your fantasies and your, your uh, basically your horniness. Mm-hmm. You know, your allowingness, your love sex. And that is very much the opposing, is it very, as you said, it was a very much contradiction towards how life at, in Helsinki or in Finland was post-war. And it is intriguing in a liberal perspective, 2017, where we're so liberal at the moment, which is so, everything is so out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so in, in a story perspective, it was one of the most inspiring things of an artist, looking at that and uh, portraying that as so. I wanted to ask, you know, uh, why did you pick up this this project, or what was interesting to you? Why was this project so important for you um, as a, a heterosexual, you know, director? Not that that makes a difference, but you know, because the story is so important in itself. But I'm interested and curious to find out, you know, because there's a lot of passion that is behind this film. I'd love to hear from you. No, and of course, I mean, I. I mean, I always say that I'm as a gay guy as a heterosexual can be. <laughs> that sense, that I always found I always found his art very erotic, and and it's it's it doesn't only it's not just an inspiration of the art in that sense. It's also an inspiration, of course, of the story. And you, when you think and you, uh, I made in my in my life, I made a lot of films about you know, people who have been outside of the community, the community has kind of tried to leave them outside or or people who have fought for something in their life. And I think that's very inspiring. You know, in a, in a way you look at the story as a, a person who's fighting for even for freedom of speech, freedom of being, freedom of sexuality, freedom of sex. And I think that's very inspiring. I mean, that, that passion that I see in him as a character, as a person, I find that something that is, worth telling a film, worth telling a story. And, on the other hand, when you look at the film, his life was very cinematic. It's hugely cinematic. I mean, I mean, I'm just wondering all the material, I mean, when you look at the film and all the material and all the things that happened to him in his life, you get a feeling that, in a way, I wish, you know, I would have had such a rich life when I'm, you know, on my dying bed. And uh, and also of the, all the stuff that just was left out, which was because we couldn't couldn't fit in in the two hours, and mm-hmm. uh, I think you know there's many many points why mm-hmm. I felt it so inspirational. 
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices.